We're going to read Romans 8, 14 through 16. It's on page 785 in your pew Bible. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Those are the words of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Tom. Happy Father's Day. Did I get the date wrong? Is it not Father's Day? Did I miss something? <laughs> and again, this is just like Mother's Day. Even if you're not a father, if you have a father, happy Father's Day. And everybody here has a father, so it works. Um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm probably going to get in trouble for it later, but you know that's not something that I shy away from. Um, I, got a, I have already received a special Father's Day present that was totally a surprise that apparently everyone in my family knew about, but I didn't. And that is one of my very, very best friends who I've known since junior high and high school, who for good or bad has very much shaped the person that I am, the man that I am today, um, that God has worked through in just so many amazing ways, is here today. He's uh, in the Coast Guard serving our country proudly, but he's in Chicago and out visiting, and he's here with us this morning. And I just want to acknowledge him, Jason Newbar, right here. And as you're about to preach a sermon, when you have someone who knows you're from junior high school, let me tell you, it's intimidating, because they're like, <laughs> really? Okay. So, <laughs> as we celebrate Father's Day today, uh, I think we all recognize that each one of us grows up with a shared longing, and in many ways, an innate need for a father's blessing. Every child born into this world possesses a set of genes that are especially combined to the process of reproduction. And as we know, half of a child's genes come from the mom and the other half come from the father. And therefore, it only makes sense, even just at a biological level, that a father's role in a child's life is indispensable in to help determine the well-being of that child. For most children, when we talk about fathers, <laughs> their father is the biggest, the strongest, their father is smarter and faster than every other, every other dad that's out there. And even as we grow older as children and begin to notice the weaknesses and the flaws of our fathers, we still seek to elicit their approval and their pride. And just as the role of a mother provides a crucial foundation in a child's life, a father's presence, a father's acceptance, a father's security and support, a father's love are all equally vital. But sadly, for many of us, these particular needs that I just highlighted have not always been met. And this can often be the darker side, if you will, the more challenging part about celebrating Father's Day. After all, more children than we realize, or perhaps care to admit, grow up without a father. Whether it's due to abandonment, functional absenteeism, or sometimes even premature death. For others, these essential fatherly needs are only partially fulfilled. They've only been partially been fulfilled by their earthly dads. As we all come to learn eventually, the hard truth is not all fathers are proper or healthy role models for their children. And yet, despite all of this, as hard as it is, despite all of it, no one 
that I've found, even those with a less desirable than relationship with his or her father, wishes to be completely fatherless. And the good news, the good news this morning on this Father's Day, the good news that you heard Duncan read that Paul gave to the people in Rome, the good news, the gospel, is that we all, all of us, have a perfect father in the person of God. Nothing. Which is exactly where I expected you to go. This thing, this need that we have, and yet to say that we all have a perfect father in the Father of God, and yet for most of us, we don't really know how to react. There's not even a, an amen that comes out of that. Because what's interesting is that even though we have this need, even though it's lacking for us, I find in the church, accepting, let alone experiencing God as our father, proves to be one of the most challenging aspects of the faith. And that's for new believers and committed Christians alike. This last year, we've spent time looking at this idea of a covenant, that, our, that God is our Father, we are His children in dependency upon Him, and yet throughout the years, we've talked about that understanding of discipleship. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said one of two things. They've either said they really have a hard time with understanding God primarily as Father. It's very difficult for them. And others who say, you know, I get it on an intellectual level, but I'm just really, it's just, it's just not how I think about God. I struggle with it. We can sing of the God of our fathers in church, but deep down we struggle with the reality of God being our father. We might believe in our heads and even pray to Father God over and over again, but practically we don't, I find, many of us experience God in such intimate and relational terms. You probably already imagine this or think this. A large part of the disconnect in perceiving God this way relates back to our experiences with our earthly fathers. Struggles with or deficiencies in our relationships with our earthly dads are often the, the reason for this because the absence, the pain, the mistrust, or other negative perceptions of fathers are easily transferred onto our relationship with God. Now, in saying this, I also want to say to some of you, because some of you are, are, can, can nod your head and agree with that as you are, but I also want to say that to, to the rest of you who don't, that this disconnect of understanding God as our Father can also happen even in the midst of positive experiences, a positive view of our earthly fathers. Let's say your earthly father was terrific, that there were no major flaws or problems. If this, this positive experience becomes the lens through which you envision God, you're still limiting or, un, or, or restricting your understanding and interaction with God because you're still trying to make the revelation of who this God is as your father, our father, fit into the box of your experience with your earthly father. The problem in both cases, negative or positive, is that we are looking at God as our father from the wrong direction. Our relationships with our earthly fathers should not ultimately inform or shape our image and experience of God as our Father. Rather, as people who are created in the image of God, who bear the impression of God's character and will within us, God as our Father should inform and define our relationship with all of our earthly fathers, be they biological or adopted. That's the right direction. Another way of getting at this is to say that God is not called our Father because He copies or follows after all other earthly fathers. God is our father because all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Now this may seem simplistic, may be obvious, but th just that alone 
brings out something that I've mentioned before that bears repeating. How we see God is foundational because how we perceive God affects how we see everything else, including ourselves. And if we're not seeing the truth about God, if we're looking at God from the wrong direction, then what we're taking in is a false image or perception of God. And biblically, this is known as an idol. And idols are dangerous. Idols are harmful. Idols are, in fact, deadly, ultimately, because they allow us to fashion or engage life from a lie. And to build one's life, one's perception of the universe, of one's humanity, of one's own identity, or one's understanding of God on a falsehood is to build on a foundation that will eventually crumble and fall. So for the rest of this morning, what I want to do is I want to explore the truth of God as our perfect father. I'd like to help us look in the wrong direction. The, <laughs> I'd like us to help us look in the right direction in terms of our relationship with God. But in order to do this, I was jumping ahead, we have to keep looking in a couple of other wrong directions first. <laughs> All experiences in this room aside, for the average person, most people, when we think about who God is, if we ever do it all, when we're left on our own, our tendency is to stumble a bit in the dark. At some point in our lives, comes at different places for each one of us, we start to search for meaning. We look for answers. There are bigger questions that we struggle to understand the answer to. And eventually, hopefully, at some point, we look beyond ourselves. Maybe we even try to look up. We look up to find God. Maybe this is the epiphany. Maybe it's just this simple of an insight. Maybe in the midst of all those questions, in the midst of that search for meaning, we come to that place where we say to ourselves, we believe we came from somewhere. And maybe behind that somewhere is someone. And so we look up and we perceive God as the creator. God is the one who brings everything into existence. And as we reflect on this belief, this understanding of God as creator, we might even get more focused. We might even get more specific about describing God in this way. And we might get to a place where we say that God is the one who brings everything into existence, but he is not brought into being by anything. God is the author and life of all meaning, but the beginning and the end of all things, but he is not brought into being by anything. The, the philosopher the slash theologian St. Thomas Aquinas, when he was trying to understand God, when he was looking up, put it this way. He said that God is the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause. God brings all life into being, but nothing brings God into being. God's not brought into being by anything. This, is a, this insight, if we have it, is about God is significant. God is the architect of life as we know it. And we marvel at his handiwork as we hike a mountain, take in a sunset, or look under a microscope. For many of us, this is exactly how we perceive and relate to God. And that's why many of us say we find God in nature. That's the place where we most relate and experience God. Because of this understanding of how we can see God's handiwork, his creation. For others of us, God is the creator. God's the author of the story. We sense his authorship when we feel chapters in our lives come to a close and new ones are about to begin. We marvel and sometimes are left speechless at those moments when events in our lives converge in ways that we could not have imagined or hoped for. God is the creator. For many of us, this is our primary view of God. 
When I ask, what do you think about God? I did this in the middle school issue. This is it. God is creator. Our default understanding of who God is, but also how God works. But here's the thing, beloved in Christ, it's not sufficient. It does not adequately convey who God is. If God is just the creator, if that is the sum of who we understand God to be, then God, despite all of his cosmic power, is extremely weak. How can I argue that? How can I say that the, the author of all life, the creator of all things, is weak when this God is the beginning and end of all things? It's simple, if you think it through. If God is just the creator, if that is fundamentally and primarily what defines who God is, then the implication is that God needs a creation in order to be who he is. But that doesn't make sense, right? I mean, none of you, I think, are going to be comfortable staying there. Because it's not, it doesn't make sense. It's not comfortable for us to stay there because the implication of that statement is this. If God created us in order to be who he is, then in fact, we are the ones who are giving God life. God's existence would be dependent upon his creation, upon us. In order to be God, there would need to be us, creation. Now, if you're lost, it's exactly where you find yourself when you begin to look up. You find yourself stumbling in the dark. But maybe some of you are smarter than that. Maybe some of you are going to push further and say, wait, 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 wait a second, Pastor Chris. God's not just the creator. You can't stop there. We know more than that. We look up and we know God is not just the creator of all life. God is the ruler of the universe. God is not passive. God's the referee. God's the boundary maker and the enforcer. God's the one who ensures that decency and order prevail. The Bible says his eye is on the sparrow. He keeps the planets in their orbits. He sets every star in the sky. This God is not just the creator. This God is the ruler. This is the God who continually balances everything out, reorienting the scales so that justice is served. And we know this God as ruler will judge the good from the bad. We know that this God can, who brought me into this world can take me out. And again, this is a, another significant insight. And while understanding God as the ruler of the universe can offer us some kernels of truth, I'm going to say to you again, it's incomplete. And therefore, it's an, an inaccurate reflection of who God is and how God works. Let me help you push you further to see this by way of a question that at first, when I ask it, might offend some of you or even shock you by its presumptuousness. If God is just the ruler of the universe, what kind of salvation can this God really offer me anyway? I mean, assuming that this God even chooses to save me at all. If God is just the ruler of the universe, what kind of salvation can this God really offer me anyway? Let me answer that, point out, show you what's behind that question by way of an analogy. Let's pretend that you're in a car with me, which my friend Jason has been in many occasion. And let's pretend you're in a car with me while I'm driving and I start to speed, which has happened with my friend Jason on many an occasion. <laughs> I'm in the car, I'm driving, you're with me, and I'm speeding. I'm breaking the law. I'm doing something that's against the law. The speed limit is posted clearly and repeatedly for all to see, and I'm going faster than that limit. I'm breaking the rules. Now, in the midst of that, beyond your white knuckles being in the car with me, let's imagine some possible outcomes from that situation. As I am speeding, 
A police officer might fail to notice that I'm speeding, and I'll just keep on doing it, which I'm sure that has not been the case for anyone else here in this room. Another possibility is that I'm speeding, a police officer, his or her, he does notice me, they take out his or her radar gun, they, they tra tra track me, they begin to pursue me, but I'm really elusive and I manage to get away from them, and they can't find me, which I'm sure no one in this place has ever done. <laughs> a third option is that I'm speeding, the police officer gets me on the gun, pulls me over, takes my license, runs my plates, but then comes back and lets me off the hook without a warning. I definitely want to know who that's happened to in this room. <laughs> Now, there's lots of other variables, but I focus on these three because they all have the same thing in common. They're all about getting away with it. Now, before we talk about that, what I want you to see in this analogy is that in that moment, according to the law, playing by the rules, my actions bear a consequence. They merit punishment. Pay a fine, lose my license, go to jail, whatever. Whether or not I get caught doesn't change what I deserve what I owe. But notice that the salvation offered to me by the three outcomes that I mentioned to you, all of them, either getting away with it, evading it, or being let off with a warning, all three expressions of salvation, all they do is they offer me thankfulness. They evoke thankfulness from me, but nothing else. Now, you might ask, what's wrong with being thankful? Thankful, what, thankful is a good thing. Why is that bad? There's nothing wrong with being thankful. It's just not enough. It's just not enough. Getting away with it in whatever form, whether I, again, I'm not noticed, I evade it, or I'm let off with a warning, getting away with it evokes gratitude, but it doesn't evoke love. As I put the keys back in the ignition and depart, I'm a grateful man, but I'm not a loving one. The greatest commandment escapes me. In letting me off with a warning and counting me as a law-abiding citizen, I don't go home and love the cop with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. In fact, I probably never think about the cop again until the next time I get pulled over. And I'm certainly not loving my neighbor as myself because when I see or experience my neighbor speeding, I think I might even say out loud, hey, that guy deserves to get pulled over, even though I get let off with a warning. If God is just the ruler of the universe, if you're tracking with me, then the only salvation this God offers me is to forgive me and treat me as if I kept the rules. And for many of us, this is our primary understanding of what our relationship with God is about, that God forgives us and acts like we kept the rules. But what I want you to see is that receiving forgiveness in this way, understanding forgiveness just being that, can in many ways just become a new rule. If you want to get away with doing something wrong, if you want to get let go with a warning, here's what you have to do. Invite Jesus into your heart, come to church on Sunday, put a little money in the offering plate, help out and serve other people. But beloved, if this is as far as we get in our view of things, what happens, and for many of us, this is where we're living, all we do is learn how to relate to God, not as an actual living being, but as nothing more than a doctrine. Our relationship with God becomes inherently propositional. If you do this, then God will do that. If you don't do this, then God won't do that. In fact, for many of us, this is the kind of spiritual advice we give each other. What's happening in your life? What you're doing? Well, if you're doing that, then God's not going to do that. Well, what you need to do is you need to do this, and then God's going to do this. But what's wrong, what's incomplete, is that this is really relating to an imaginary God. 
a straw man, much like the wizard at the end of the yellow brick road in the land of Oz. Because salvation is in its, in its offering and its receiving isn't just about gratitude, it's about more, it's about love. Biblically, God desires and wants to elicit not just our appreciation, not just our thankfulness, God wants to elicit our love. God doesn't just want us to learn how to keep or bend the rules, how to avoid punishment, and yet for many of us, this is the extent of our relationship with God. God longs for us to see more than the rules. God longs for us to embrace the relationship, the intimacy that comes not just from keeping the rules or bending them, but from living in dependence upon him. What I'm saying to you in both of these examples is that looking up to find God is looking in the wrong direction. Because as we've just learned, and there's lots more I could say, just from the two examples, God is creator, God is ruler, looking up is the wrong direction because it doesn't give us the complete picture. We might figure out that God is the creator of all life. We might go even further and realize that God is the ruler of the universe and these things are true, but the person of God will still remain out of reach to us. Our perception as to whom God is will be limited to what God does. The being of God, the personality of God, the face of God will lie beyond our vision. And for many of us, as I say, this is how we look. And yet, if these are the glasses by which we see God, we're spiritually blind. But if looking up is the wrong direction, then where are we supposed to look? If we're not supposed to look up, where are we supposed to look? How do we fully and completely know who God is? The answer of our faith, the answer that makes our faith unique, it's distinctive for us, is that we look to Jesus Christ. You can point to commonalities among all world religions, and that's helpful in terms of conversation, but they are not all the same. And our distinctive is saying if you want to fully and completely know who God is, you have to look through the person of Jesus Christ. Not by looking up into the darkness, not by trying to see beyond earth into heaven, but instead looking into the light that's come into our darkness the light that's come into the darkness of our vision. We are to look at the revelation of Jesus Christ in order to see God, to know who God is, to understand how God truly works. This is the defining center, the heart of the Christian faith. And yet for many of us, we are missing it. Because who does Jesus reveal God to be? Not primarily a creator, not essentially a ruler, the God that he presents to us, reveals to us, is more relational than a philosophical proposition. The God he reveals to us is far more intimate, far more in our space, the space of our lives, than some grand theological doctrine. Jesus, again and again, always spoke of God as my Father. When Jesus taught us how to pray, and we say the Lord's Prayer consistently in our prayer lives and frequently in church on Sundays, when Jesus taught us how to pray, this foundational gift that he gave us, this lesson, when he taught us how to approach and talk with God, he told us to call God our Father. In fact, if you were to later on today or this week read through all the Gospels, all four of them, you will find that Jesus addresses God as our Father, as Father, in all of his prayers with one exception. Jesus, you'll see, teaches us again and again that in the kingdom of God, we are to perceive and call God our Father because that is who God is. 
God, first and foremost, wants to be seen by us as our dad. But what does it mean to know God as our father? What is a father? How is God as our father different than someone like me as a father? Well, let's start there. Let's look at just a basic definition of what's a father. A father is a person who begets life. A father is someone who has children, either by adoption or by birth. Now, I'm sure this isn't a late-breaking newsflash for any of you, but I wasn't always a father. I wasn't a father until I had two children, Emma and Ethan. Prior to that, I was not a father. But God, our father, is not like that. God, our father, is not like that. I have to do something. I have to create life to be a father. But God is life. God creates because God is the father. God creates because he is our father. God is our eternal father. In other words, it's not as if God gave life for the first time when he created the universe. You know, it's not like God, on the seventh day, God was done and he took out a cigar and he said, you know, I did pretty good work there. God did not become a father from creating the universe. He didn't create and then become a father. Fatherhood is God's essence. God is inherently life-giving. God is essentially sharing about sharing. God is continually pouring out himself. Another way to see this. When I came here this morning to lead you in worship, to, be, to preach this sermon, when I came to be here at Grace this morning, I came not serving as the father of Emma and Ethan. I came serving as your pastor. Being a father may be part of who I am, but it's not the primary role that I'm operating out of when I'm here. And I'm sure for many of you, you can relate to this. But God, as our father, is different. All of his ways are fatherly. It's not as if being a father is God's part-time gig. You know that during the day, it's his day job, God's a father, and then at night, God goes, time to rule. No. God, all that God does is fatherly. And that's what Jesus wants us to see, that being a father comes before. Being a father is the foundation out of which everything that God does comes from. And what this means, why this is so important, where for me it's a role. For God, God is eternally father. God is always fatherly. Why this matters is because that means the way we need, the ultimate, primary, essential way we need to see God through Jesus Christ is that God is inherently personal. That God's default is relational. That God is family-oriented at his core. And what I'm saying right now, you may be nodding your heads, but functionally, many of us do not approach or perceive God this way. We don't think personal. We don't think relational. We don't think family-oriented. We don't have that kind of intimacy with God. And yet God didn't become a father like I did. Being the father is who God is. And the Apostle John adds to our understanding of true fatherhood, of what it means to look at God as our father, when he writes... In one of his letters, as you know, the simple three-word statement, God is love. Think about that for a second. What does it mean to understand God is love? How is love related to fatherhood? We say this so much that we miss the significance of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And actually what we ought to say, what our ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed remind us, is that Jesus is in fact the eternal Son of God. In other words, we believe there was never a time when Jesus did not exist as the Son of God. 
This is important because if there was never a time that Jesus did not exist as the Son of God, then there was never a time that God did not exist as the Father. And if God is eternally the Father and Jesus is eternally the Son, the significance of that understanding is that eternal relationship between Jesus as the Son and God as the Father is the basis of the eternal love that we speak about, that we look to when we say that God is love. I know I'm losing you. When we talked about the Trinity, Denise gave us a great picture of the eternal Father, the eternal Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to evoke that picture again, where we often think of them as standing next to each other. She gave you this beautiful picture of them being interlocked, being complete. To help you focus on that picture, let me ask you a question you probably never have asked yourself before. What was God doing before he created the universe? You know, we're like most kids, right? We, we think our parents started to exist when they had us. Right? I mean, they don't know. I mean, they see Jason, but that's like a complete mystery to my kids. They think that my life began when they came into the world. And in one sense, it began in a new way. What was God doing before he created the universe? You ever think about that? I mean, or do most of us go, you know, I mean, what do you think? You think God's just sitting there going, man, this sucks. Or he was bored, lonely, looking at his watch. What to do, what to do. <laughs> no, one of our fundamental understandings, and this is why this is so significant, eternal Son, eternal Father, eternal Holy Spirit, this idea of the Trinity, is God was perfectly complete. God is perfectly complete. That picture that Denise gives, there's no opening there, because it's, and that's why the circle is often used to represent the Trinity. There's no brokenness. There's no, it's complete. It's whole. And this is so significant, because what this means is that to understand God as a father and God's love as a father is that God loves as a father. His, the love that he offers us is offered not out of need or obligation. God doesn't create us. God is not the creator because he goes, man, I need someone to love. Love would be cool. God already is love. He, it's all there. There's nothing needed. God doesn't create us out of need. God creates us, not for love. God, our Father, creates us out of love. This incredible love that's being experienced, this, the, the, our God's default is to share that love, to impart that love. God doesn't rule to force our love. You know, God doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to create this universe, and I'm going to create this order and structure, and I'm going to create it in such, in such a way that they're just going to have to love me. And you're laughing right now, but for many of us as parents, that's exactly what we do to our children. I'm going to structure their life. I'm going to create this world that they're just going to have to love me. God, our Father, doesn't create us, doesn't rule us to force our love. God, our Father, rules, creates the order and structure, brings order out of chaos in order to evoke our love. Because he desires our freely given love. How does, this, how does God, our Father, make his love known to us? How does God our Father share who he is? We've talked about one already, by giving us life. God is the creator. By giving us life, by creating this world around us, we see God's handiwork, and that's evidence of the love that he pours out to us, the love that he has for us. God brings Adam and Eve into the world as he brings each one and says, look around, f you know, fill creation, be fruitful and multiply, cultivate, explore, discover, create. That's a manifestation of our Father's love for us. But our Father shows his love for us through baptism. 
That in the midst of when we, we come into this world, we immediately get into trouble. And, and for all of us, it's different, but we all screw up. We all make mistakes. And it's not about how many. One's bad enough. We all mess up. And our Father in baptism comes and says to us, come into the water. Come get clean. And before we, we've, we've done anything, and, and despite what we do, our Father says to us, you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased, not because of what you've done or haven't done, not because of what you're going to do, but because I am your father. God says that to Jesus, and in extension, Jesus is revealing that our father says that to us. God embraces us in the midst of our waywardness. But how does our father show his love to us as we will sing later, as we've sung already today, by going the distance, by being relentless in pursuing us by going to the cross, by not letting us, by not acting as though nothing happened, by not letting us off with a warning, but by instead taking it on the cross and saying, you know what, I'm going to clean this up. You watch. I'm going to clean this up. You help. I'm going to clean this up and I'm going to make things better than it was before. Because that's what fathers do. We have... And God, our Father, a kind of God who loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to bring us home. So that when we can't look up and see God, so when we look through the telescope in the wrong direction, our Father turns it around, our Father reaches down and grabs us. That's God as our Father. That's the love of God as our Father. Paul puts it this way. Hear it again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our own spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Beloved, on this Father's Day, understand the implications of knowing God as our Father, of receiving our Father's love. How does that change things for us? I can speak for myself. Knowing that God is my perfect Father, that God's love is the default position. My Father's default position is loving me in my own relationship with my Father. And I, had a great, I have a great relationship with my dad. But in the midst of that great relationship, there are places in which I'm still striving for his approval. I'm still striving for his pride. There are places in which he's not perfect and he's flawed. And I can live continually frustrated by those flaws or frustrated by my inability to get his approval and his pride. And instead, when I realize that I have a perfect father in this God who loves me as I am, who created me out of love, who redeems me out of love, who sustains me out of love, I can receive the love that this God has for me through my father for what it is. I can accept and embrace my father as he is. And for some of you, that your father may not have been as great a dad as my dad. But you still can receive your father for who he is. You can receive that through that father, no matter how imperfect, God was loving you, not out of need, not out of obligation. And then as a father to my own kids, <laughs> I am so easily tempted, I alluded to it before, as a father to my own kids, and they can give testimony. They won't, but they could give testimony. <laughs> that it is very tempting to need them. 
That as I look to them and I'm proud of them and I'm excited by them and I get scared because my son's about to start high school and my daughter's two years away from college, I won't cry. <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to think I need them. I can't let them go. Who will I be without them? I look to them and how much I've poured into them. Who will I be without them? It's very easy for me to love them and to be their father out of need. It's very tempting also to love them out of obligation, to continue to construct the contours of their life, to create the parameters, and don't comment on this part, by the way, so that they will be forced to love me. But when I realize that I don't have to be tempted to love them out of need, when I realize that I don't have to love them out of obligation, when I realize that my father is perfect and his love is for me, I'm able to let them be who they're created to be. And their destiny, they will always be my children, but their destiny, and a lot of us as parents, we don't get this, is not for them to forever be my son and my daughter. They're to be my brother and my sister in Christ. On this Father's Day, let's celebrate the God that's behind the curtain of our theological doctrines. Let's celebrate the God who's behind the curtain of our daddy issues. As we set aside today, as we should, to remember and honor our earthly fathers, let us also celebrate this God who more than anything else wants to be understood as our father. May we truly reflect and appreciate how this God we worship is interested in more than a title. Our God desires a full and complete relationship. This God desires to be known, to be experienced as a perfect father. Through Jesus Christ, this relationship, this promise of a perfect father's blessing is available to everyone. And part of the joy of discipleship, of following Jesus, is that we all can see, we all can know, we all can experience, we all can enjoy God not only as the dad we've all secretly wanted, but as the father we have always needed. Will you pray with me? <sighs> Father God, thank you for your perfect example. I praise you because you show all fathers how to love, how to shepherd, how to nurture, how to discipline and challenge so that their sons and daughters, by birth or adoption, can flourish in this world as you have planned and carry your presence to all they meet. Today we lift up to you, Father God, those fathers who have worked hard to balance the demands of a job, of marriage, of children, with an honest awareness of both joy and sacrifice. We praise you for those fathers who lacked a good role model for a father and yet did not give up, continued to do the best they could, continue to do the best they can to be a father to their children. Today we lift up to you, O oh Father God, those fathers who by their own account were not always there for their children but who are trying, who continue now to offer their children, now maybe even grown, their love and support. We seek your healing for those fathers who are still absent, for those fathers who have still abandoned their children, for those fathers who have been wounded or have been wounded by the neglect and hostility within their families. Today we lift up to you, Father God, those fathers who despite divorce have remained in their children's lives, those fathers whose children are adopted and whose love and support is offered healing. 
Those fathers who as stepfathers freely chose the obligation of fatherhood and earned their stepchildren's love and respect. We seek your comfort for those fathers who have not experienced that reality. Who are separated from their children. Who have lost a child to death and yet continue to hold that child in their heart. Today we lift up to you, Father God, those men who have no children, but who in cherishing the next generation as if they were their own, have become spiritual fathers to so many. We praise you for those men who have fathered us in their role as mentors and guides. And we ask your wisdom and guidance upon those men who are about to become fathers. May they openly delight in their children pouring out the love that you have given them upon their children, not out of need or obligation, but just out of pure joy. Father God, we also remember today, and we praise you for those fathers who are no longer with us, for those fathers who have died, who have gone home to you, who we miss desperately, but who live on in our memory and whose love and care continues to nurture us. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your perfect fathering. We praise you this morning and every day because we are fearfully, wonderfully, and lovingly made. We thank you. We rejoice in you for continually shepherding and nurturing, disciplining and challenging us so that we can flourish in your purpose and plan for our lives and so that we can bear you, our Father's image, more fully still. All these things are possible because of our brother, your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name, Father, we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.